Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. My guest today is Jess Crutchfield. Jess views health as life and is dedicated to helping others achieve and sustain good health for a healthier human race and a healthier planet. She is a national board-certified health and wellness coach with functional medicine as a focus, a Thai bodywork instructor at Boulder Massage Therapy Institute and practitioner teacher, a yoga and breath facilitator, and Boulder Zook High Dance Community Organizer. Her belief is that we all innately have the capacity to heal ourselves if only given the chance, and accordingly, she assists her clients and students in becoming more vital, embodied, and aware. Additionally, I'll be donating to and raising awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice with each and every episode. And in this episode, the organization is called Young Yokes. Please join me in donating. It's for a wonderful cause that Jess has presenced in this conversation. And in today's conversation with Jess, we focus on so many different aspects of health and wellness. Jess has a background and training in being a classical musician and a teacher. And so she talks about a lot of the conditioning that she had in being rigid and having confined structures and lots of shoulds and imposed ways of being. And a lot of Jess's journey in the last, call it five to 10 years, has been unlearning a lot of her conditioning and getting in touch with what really matters to her. And so we look at that through the lens of embodiment, which she has found in nutrition, in yoga, in breathing, different forms of breath work and meditation. And we also look at from the lens of coaching and challenging our beliefs and having a mirror held up to us. Another thing I really appreciate about Jess that she illuminates in this conversation is that women work on different biological clocks than men. And women have a hormonal period that cycles every month, which on one hand seems really obvious. And on another hand, we don't have a society that really accommodates for that or adjusts or allows for that in any way. So Jess talks about how as a woman, she sets up her life and structures her life in a way that supports her hormonal cycle, which I have not discussed on this podcast, and I think is really illuminating and can give you some clues about how you might set up your day and and your life. So Jess, to me, is someone who really embodies this work and brings a lot of experience, personal experience and wisdom and, and learnings and teachings about health and wellness from multiple angles. I really enjoyed this conversation. With all of that said, I will let Jess take it from here. Let's settle in, take a deep breath. And enjoy what Jess has for us on today's episode. Hi, Jess. Welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Hey, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. 
I've really been looking forward to having you on. A, a quick shout out to Forrest and thank you for the introduction because we're going to, I know we're going to go so many wonderful places together today. And I would like to start with you. The same question I asked Forrest when he was on the show, the same question I ask almost everyone who's a guest on my show to start off. What was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Oh, <laughs> at my dinner table growing up is a sweet question. There were many different eras of the dinner table growing up. So I'll just pick one. It was very common that my brother and I would sit across from each other and my parents would sit across from each other. And my dad didn't spend a lot of time at home. So it was always the time that he'd be catching up with us with whatever was happening at school or anything else. But really the, the cutest standout memory is how much my mother hated if we burped, but how much my dad loved it. <laughs> there was a lot of battling in that sense and, and us feeling delighted by getting away with it because daddy liked it, you know? <laughs> and yeah, I, I guess that'll be the one that stands out first. Yeah. And what were you like when you were younger? What were you like as a child? I was a really curious kid that read a lot and that really loved school. I really enjoyed learning new things, seeing more parts of what the world was like from my little microcosm in a small town in Northern Maryland, where it wasn't like the big world out there. My grandmother often comments still to this day how much I was a reader and how I would read everything. In some ways, the shadow side of it was, is I was a bit of a know-it-all. <laughs> That's the raw truth is I had a lot of edges being tested with, you know, wanting to help someone at school who was struggling with a, with a homework problem, whatever it was, and genuinely wanting to help, but it coming off like I was a little conceited. So I've worked a lot since then on, on delivering a message, not giving unsolicited advice and truly being understood because I felt really misunderstood as a kid. Great intentions, not well conveyed. Mm. Could, could you say a little bit more about being misunderstood? There's another component too of your childhood that I wanted to hone in on that I, it seems kind of related to what you were speaking about that you as a know-it-all are being so self-assured that, that it's kind of blocking off a lot of opportunity to learn and grow in your life. But yeah, could you could you just say a little bit more about not being understood? That there's many layers to that. Hmm. I definitely grew up as a helper and got praise for being helpful and got praise for being intelligent and doing homework well or getting great grades. So I became a high achiever. But I think that that had its own way of also hiding the other realness that was happening inside on an emotional level. Gosh, it's, it's complex. The, the work I've been doing around parental trauma wounds and things, just that it didn't seem okay to be expressive about what I really was feeling. I guess there'd be some kind of dislike of it in my mother's expressions or in words that she'd say. And so I think that in some ways it got squashed quite a bit. I wasn't, I don't think clinically dissociated, but I certainly wasn't as in touch with things I felt 
And because I wasn't in touch with things I felt, of course, nobody else could be in touch with what I felt. I seemed to be this very well put together, intelligent, know what I'm doing, independent, capable, get the good grades, no problems in school. Just I wasn't a problem to my parents. They didn't have to look after me because I took care of myself. The thing I think you might be alluding to that you know a bit about me already is that I grew up in an environment where my mom held a daycare in our house. That daycare was in our house from my age, six to 16. And I was the oldest of the daycare. I was also the oldest of the the two of us, my, my brother and I. And her needing to take care of the other kids. <laughs> I mean, maybe you can imagine the byproduct. Well, I think that wasn't actually something that I knew, Jess. I, I didn't know that you had that your mom had a daycare within your house. And the way that my funky brain works, I was actually thinking of maybe you didn't say that you felt boxed in really as much uh, in your initial answer. But I know that that's something that you felt in relationship to being classically trained as a musician. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak just a little bit about what your training as a classical musician was like and and ways that you felt confined or boxed in or or limited by that and i think that kind of, that also adds to the tapestry of what it meant to be a young jess and it paints a, a full picture of a lot of the conditioning that you were raised with beautiful yeah i know what you mean now we did we did have a little discussion about that and so what's most fascinating to me is i'm fairly certain that throughout the time of my early training in music, instrumental music. At that time, I wouldn't have said I felt boxed in. Mm. At that time, I would have said that this was a creative outlet. I would have said that this is developing me in so many countless ways. I would have said, music makes you smarter. (laughs) You know, that was a phrase on our band folders as a kid. And I felt really proud that there could be, and maybe was, if anyone had ever done a study on me, a very obvious correlation between me starting band as a flute player in fourth grade with that same marking period coming home with straight A's for the first time. And I felt on a mission to just keep getting better at music, more perfect. (laughs) The perfectionism really, really was ingrained starting really young. But so were great qualities like great discipline, which has carried through all these years through adulthood. It's in retrospect, post-college and post my performance days and post my music educator days in public schools in Maryland that I can see in hindsight, wow, I was so boxed into just being great at reading music on a page, on a stand, behind my instrument. I wasn't great at knowing how to express my own truth at all. (laughs) I didn't create music, the the confines of the classical training develop you to read music well. They don't teach you how to harness your own creativity to create your own music. In college, when I had to do some creation of music in my undergraduate degree for instrumental music, I had a hard time. I'd never learned improvisation. I, I never really knew how to use my own voice. I could sing in the choir, I could play my flute, I could play my piccolo, my mellophone in the marching band, I could conduct with my arms, the whole band, but did I know my heart's song? (laughs) It sounds really cheesy, but no, I, I didn't know. In that way, I recognized I had been really boxed in. Beautiful training, great effect for me to 
have an attention to detail and for me to be so highly organized and and great with discipline and bringing in new habits as an adult. But the negative byproducts were a perfectionism flare that's been incredibly hard to heal, not eradicate, but just use the good parts and get rid of the not good parts. And also the, the ongoing thing I'm working with is using my own creativity, using my own voice and what what would I want to sing? Uh, you know, like <laughs> getting together with friends who say like, let's just get together and sing and lay around and play games with our voices. And that's terrifying for me, even today as a 30 year old me. Yeah. But I do it to push my edges because I'd felt so boxed in for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like a, a major limitation and natural byproduct of our education system in general it's not even just around music but there is a very kind of linear expectation with like let's this is the way that things are done and then if you do that well then you go to the next level and then this is the way things are done and you keep doing that over and over again and there isn't much if any attention paid to how to create in in your own way whether that's in music or even in a field like mathematics or engineering that in some ways, I think it behooves every single person to be more in touch with their heart song in whatever way that takes shape. And it's sorely lacking in mm-hmm. the way that we're brought up a lot of times, but I can really relate to the the perfectionist and achiever. It wasn't because that was the only way I got attention from my parents, but it seemed like that was what was the best in it. It kind of just is what screamed out in our culture and our society is that this is the way to be the best, most successful, most seen, most desirable person. And it, you know, it goes into spousal relationships and it leaks into everything. (laughs) I could really get into it about schools for sure that the lack of individuation really of yeah. of helping to identify for a kid what their own gifts are and then playing those up now you know this is just speaking towards public school yeah, the montessori yeah. schools the waldorf schools there, there are many other formats of education where they do really hone in to what is this kid's gift and finding the best means for them to utilize it Versus now, like the public school system, even still to this day, as recent as a few years ago when I was teaching, and I'm fairly certain still now, it's a lot more like the block statistical, get them high achieving on exams, push them forward, get them into a college so that they can pay for the college, so that they can get the degree, so that they can get the good job, so that they can have the good family. And that that is absolutely what I, too, had been swept away in. (sighs) (laughs) but I think I broke free of it on my own accord (laughs) would love to hear about that I mean that's exactly where I wanted to go that because I know that there's so many different areas of development and growth and, and health that we could discuss today but when did you start to pay more attention to whatever you felt called to or or start looking more for what your gifts are and and what how you wanted to show up as an individual versus ways that maybe you were conditioned or sold as as the right way oh great question and i'm like reeling in my brain to try to pinpoint the first instance of me attempting to seek out what was more true for me than just what i thought i needed to do or should do 
I had really thought what I needed to do and should do was the noble thing to go be a teacher. I was great at music. I was great at sharing information. So I went to school to become a teacher. And that was a good idea. But it it was very much laden with the shoulds. Like, oh, I should do this. During college, a friend of mine hinted at that I might enjoy taking hot yoga classes. So I decided to try it. I didn't really have much of an, an athleticism to me. Didn't do a lot of working out or really be in my body in ways outside of marching band. Marching band was like drum corps, very militaristic. Of course, I was in my body, but it was for machine purposes, not to feel what I felt. It actually ingrained a lot of negative patterns and a walking gait to have a roll step heel to toe. But anyway, probably yoga was the very first instance of starting to explore myself. And it wasn't until post-college. I lived abroad. I spent time in Australia And I found a school there that I really enjoyed taking classes from. And I started learning more uh, of the philosophy of yoga while abroad. When I came back to the U.S., it was again laden with shoulds. Uh, I shouldn't spend so much time au pairing in another country. I should come back home where I got my degree and do the job that I said I would do. So I did that. And I felt very much dismayed when I went to the yoga classes I had previously done in the town that I took my undergrad studies in, they felt like I was hyperventilating in class. They felt like the teachers were totally misattuned to breathing. I felt like I was being pushed beyond what actually made sense for my body. Even in hindsight, I'm surprised that I had that awareness because I don't think I had a lot of embodied awareness at that age. That was around age 22. So I spent a couple of years teaching in public school and I went to a couple of yoga classes here and there. I didn't feel particularly connected to it. And I ended up at 108 salutations, Thanksgiving sort of celebration in 2016, where another individual was seated beside me whom I had just met that evening. And he reflected to me the kind of reflection that I am just incredibly grateful for now. And I see that I do that for individuals now where, where I am in my life today. But he saw me in a way that no one else had ever seen me. He saw the discontent I felt in teaching in public school. For whatever reasons, I don't remember his precise words, but he just like pegged me on the head of, wow, you're not super satisfied in your life. Mm -hmm. And he happened to be co-leading a retreat that was both Thai massage and yoga oriented in Costa Rica just a couple months later. And he invited me to go to it. My resistance and my high achiever need to be a great school teacher mind said, fuck no, straight away, because it was going to be the week after the holiday break had came back. And in my brain, I'm like, oh, I'm a new teacher. I'm only in my second year teaching here. My principal and assistant principal are always watching. And they wouldn't like if I took a week off after we already had a week off. This man ran into me again a couple weeks later and asked me again. (laughs) And I scratched my head and thought, huh, well, that might be possible, actually. Let me go talk to some like mentor teachers that are also music educators and see what they say about me getting subplans set up and blah, blah, blah. I went on the retreat, needless to say. It was like a five-week turnaround from when I said I would go, somehow had the savings to go, went, and that was the domino. (laughs) That was the domino into everything else. It's that day. It was January 8th of 2017 that I went to that retreat and it stands out. I know the date. 
I've lost a little track of what your question was at this point. That was beautiful. I mean, it was one of the instances that you started to realize the the playbook that I've been given is incomplete in in some ways. And I'm, I'm hearing a lot around lack of embodiment. And I, I know this is a, a topic that we wanted to really dive into. So yoga was one way that you started to maybe get more in touch with, oh, there's like embodiment, not in the kind of sergeant militaristic following the rules and I'm in my body under under a very confined and restricted way but I'm actually able to tune into my own intuition my own instinct these aren't the words that you said but I knowing what I know about you that those are ways that you started to look at movement that maybe you hadn't in the past and I know this is a really big question, but it's it's an on-ramp, I think, into all the different things that we might discuss today. Embodiment seems foundational to the way that you're showing up as a human now, let, let alone as a, a professional. And I'm wondering, it could be exp- different experiences that you had, like January 8th, 2017, this standout. Were there the other ways that you started to, it could be, teachers, mentors, other body workers that you came across, or just mm-hmm. other things that you think have opened, expanded what it means to you to be embodied in, in the way that you think of it now? Oh, yeah, great question. And, and that is actually where I was leading yeah. in the tendrils, I said, oh, that was the domino. Okay, well, here, here's the rest, basically. Yeah. Uh, and I think that to note what the word embodied means to me, well, at that time in 2017, I, I still wouldn't have been able to really say it. And I think my version of it now will again evolve in the coming years. But at this point in time, it's present moment relationship to what is really felt and experienced in this amazing meat suit that is miraculous and has all these foundational processes that just go autonomically without my intent. Can I listen to those? Can I really tune in and hear it? So that's where it is to me now, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think in a nutshell. The retreat I ended up on in January, 2017, the primary teacher of that retreat became lo and behold, my first Thai massage teacher. She was who was leading the Thai portion of the retreat. And after the retreat had finished, conveniently, she too was from Baltimore, Maryland, where I was. And she was leading a training in Thai massage just like two weeks after that retreat had ended. So I on a whim said, hell yeah, I'm going to take this. I don't know why I knew I needed to take that Thai training. I was teaching three bands across three different elementary schools, as well as three orchestras and some kindergarten kids, some vocal music. How would I have known at the time that learning about Thai massage was a good idea? All I can say is that experiencing Thai massage for the first time in Costa Rica felt transformational. So she was that first teacher that taught me Thai that I then later on became her apprentice. I assisted her in all her back end work. I helped her run her business in the back end. I helped assist her next Thai trainings. I took her other trainings. She also led trauma informed yoga trainings, yin yoga trainings, and eventually when I asked her, she gave me a list of teachers in the area that taught yoga to the nth degree, 
more so than just the core power yoga teachers, no offense, core power, sorry, but like I'm, I'm speaking towards more like the cookie cutter Western view. She gave me a list of the teachers that were more traditional to the roots of classical yoga. And I took classes with each of them. And I found two that just blew my mind out of the water that I knew I needed to study with. One was a Hatha yoga teacher that is the direct disciple to Sri Dharma Mitra in New York City. And the other is a woman who teaches something like Kundalini yoga, but it isn't the direct, very, again, no offense to the tradition, but the higher than thou, like the higher than thou position that Yogi Bhajan sometimes has taught from like, this is the only right way and you must wear all white and da da da. She taught a different, much more renegade version, same principles, same Kriyas, same breath work, but those two teachers are, I am indebted to, uh, their names are Gabrielle and Martha separately. And I went on to do Gabrielle's yoga teacher training very soon after and got my first 200 hour teacher training with, with Gabrielle. I ended up having to withdraw halfway through that program and I didn't finish it in the standard way. I ended up finishing it in private lessons with her. And that was such a gift. That is like the disciple relationship to the teacher and beautiful. And, and Martha's Kundalini oriented trainings were powerful, potent, like one was called the power of prana, (laughs) prana being the, you know, the energy of life, just really beautiful transformational trainings. And I'd say it was those two teachers, maybe more so than my first time massage teacher, that really started tipping my own needle to being far more cognizant of what was going on in my own system and being okay with being me and not having to always strive to be some perfect version of me, but rather all the versions of me. Mm -hmm. So I studied with them from 2017 through 2020 when the world dynamic shifted in March of 2020. All the yoga classes stopped. In that duration, I'd also decided to step away from teaching music. And in that duration, I stopped playing my French horn. I had realized that this is actually another really great strain that you, that that goes into this, is that my experience being a music educator and a performer were disembodied experiences, where again, I was boxing myself behind the music stand or behind the baton or going into school to teach kids when for me, I was not in the mood or just had some something else weighing on me, but I'd have to put on a mask mm-hmm. and pretend that everything was hunky-dory and lead lessons and who I was didn't matter. And I couldn't take that anymore. I couldn't take that. I couldn't have the impact with those kids that I desired to have when those kids in the Title I schools of Baltimore County had parents that were split, had homes with their aunt or with their grandmother, took their instrument from house to house. It was more a challenge to just get them to bring their instrument to school than it was to teach them how to play it. And I was leading them in more like social skills than I was in how to play an instrument. So I really felt disheartened that the impact I hoped to have couldn't happen there. And I had to shift who I was and how I showed up in order to even be there. So I eventually left in that duration between 2017 and 2020. I ended up launching and sustaining since then my own private practice in time massage since June of 2018. And 
I mean, I could go on and on here, but like those were really the starting points. Those two teachers, Gabrielle and Martha, my first time massage teacher and just starting a business despite despite, like, this is the, the big deal. Like my family thinking that what I needed to do was have the steady job. I know you're nodding. You feel related to this. Like, yeah, I felt like I had to do the thing I went to college for. And that was the sure thing going into self-employment was just crazy. Who would do that? My dad was doing that and failing at it. Why should I, mm. but that's really been the starting point towards the more embodied me now and, and the ever evolving embodied me now. Part of me wants to say, just keep going on and on. Cause there's, there's lots of gold in here. Jess, I'm wondering, there was a bit and forgive me if these aren't the exact words that you use, but there was a bit in there around, like, I think you started the answer just saying that embodiment is basically tuning into the present information that is happening within you and being able to be with it in, in some way, right? Like to, to listen to what's happening within you. And I think it'll be really useful for the listeners if we could just if there's an example that you have, it could be a, a choice, a big or small choice that you've made in your life. It could even just be a daily practice that you have, but just an example of what it means to pay attention to the information that is happening within you. I love this question. <laughs> well, so here's the first example that's come to mind is I'm at a standing desk right now. I'm standing up. I'm able to wiggle around. I'm able to shift my weight from side to side. I'm able to shrug my shoulders with ease, with no back of a chair behind me. <laughs> and it took a long time to realize that this was really important to do for me. <laughs> but when I've realized it, I do start my day sitting. I, I like to believe that it's important to eat while sitting and not standing for digestive purposes and to be grounded. So I eat while sitting. And if I happen to be eating at my desk, I don't want to be standing at my desk. And eventually, it's that listening in that I'm able to pay attention to when my body's starting to like, ugh, I'm like making this hand sign, like hold yeah. on and clench. When, when I recognize my body starting to hold on and clench or feel gunky or stagnant, that's a good word for me. When I'm feeling stagnant, I know it's time to move. And I know how important it is to move my body. So I move my body a lot. And in my space here, I have exercise rings and a pull-up bar and a yoga trapeze and an exercise ball and a kettlebell and a lot of floor space. Also with lots of plants, you know, the kings and queens of the room, but it's having all those tools around me that when I'm feeling achy, if I happen to be at my desk for some duration of time for the day, because I do do desk work too, then I move my body in little bursts throughout that time. And that's really important for me. That is one way where in present day, I'm able to listen in and get embodied, move some energy, <clears throat> take a yoga posture, move energy deliberately, do a breath practice to move energy deliberately. So many little tools. Mm -hmm. And it just takes, it's like, the, what's the cue then? If I'm focused on something else, how am I able to hear that cue? is is a great question i'm now of course pondering out loud but yeah i mean i could also prompt with like what does feeling i have an image or a, a felt sense of what being gunky feels like to me that there is, i know what it is to feel stagnant and that it's time for me to move around i'd be curious to hear what that 
what that feels like within you. And you started to gesture it with your hands and that there's already a felt sense there that it's like maybe constriction or a tightening of some kind or something to that effect. But what, what does gunky feel like to you? What, what are you cued into when you say it's time to move around a little bit? Yeah. Gunky or like cement in my blood. Yeah. Things just solidify and everyone has a different experience in their body. So I can't say that this is how everyone's experience will be, but in mine, my joints, most of all get what feels like frozen. Even the discs between my vertebrae. Mm -hmm. And so it's an experience of feeling locked somewhere, whether it's a finger joint, whether it's my neck. And all it takes is a deep breath. When I take that first deep breath, on the cue of, oh, I feel something cementing in my system. Then I'm able to tell where it is. And then I can wiggle. Even if I'm just in my desk chair, I can do a twist and just move that energy and go back into what I was working on. The breath is the most enlightening of all things for me. Mm-hmm. It is the one tool that we have from the first breath we draw when we're born in this lifetime to the last breath we have. And nothing else is consistent what our breathing is and our heart rate and other autonomic functions, of course, but we can see what our nervous system is like by taking a deep breath. And I have done so long of yoga practices and breath practices to have the attention on my breathing in a way that most people never pay attention. They just let it be automatic and that's okay. But when I've brought my attention to it, it's that that tunes me in to my nervous system is in unrest or my nervous system is in ease. I'm wondering if you have any breath practices that you would share. I mean, for me, I, I do Wim Hof breathing very frequently in a more, let's just say I'm in an office environment and I'm not going to just for 20 minutes start Wim Hof breathing in the middle of the office. I could just maybe do five box breaths, like four by four type of breaths. Is, is there... Mm-hmm. Anything that comes to mind for you as regular practices that you serve as some sort of reset or that you're able to use as, as that anchor that you're discussing? A hundred percent. So especially in those day-to-day activities, the best way I've found to keep yourself at a resting, coherent function in your heart and mind and in your nervous system is a practice that they call coherent breathing. It's simply a balance of the autonomic nervous system by putting regularity to the breath. Box breathing is similar. It's four in and four out. If you counted slow, it would basically be coherent breath. Coherent breathing ends up being five and a half breaths per minute because the inhale is five and a half seconds long and the exhale is five and a half seconds long. There are videos on YouTube with nice bowl sounds where the low bowl is the breath out and the high bowl is the breath in that you can play in the background and hear the cue to remind you to take the breath then. And it's the deliberate slowness, fully filling in moment by moment, like you're rationing out food over a week, doing that over the five and a half seconds in and doing that over the five and a half seconds out, fully inhaling and fully exhaling. And I've done spurts of that practice daily by many hours daily, such that I think Generally speaking, my breath is always that slow. There are some people that say that 
the people who live longest are the people who breathe the least. Mm. <laughs> Sounds counterintuitive, but what they mean is that they take less numbers of breaths throughout a day and therefore throughout their lifetime. The, the shorter breaths are shallow and they're like rabbit breaths just in the upper chest between the clavicle and the chest. And those short, shallow breaths keep your nervous system at a state of agitation. If you can take deep, full breaths consistently, your heart rate variability will be improved. Your focus will be improved. Your energy will be improved. Your nervous system will be more relaxed. When you experience something like anger, you'll be, it's not that you'll squash the anger, but you'll be able to channel it appropriately. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> There's a lot of research done on coherent breathing. So if you just type that in on Google, you'd find a lot, you'd find the videos. I'm going to make sure I link to that in the show notes as well. So I'll, I'll put a link for what coherent breathing is. And also I'll, I'll find a YouTube video where it's really miraculous that in what can shift in a minute, if you focus on your breath, it's just a random, like an intuitive thought that I was having is around sleep breathing when we sleep, right? Cause we're doing, if you're sleeping a healthy amount, it's presumably maybe six on the very low end and you might be sleeping up to even nine or more hours. I'm curious for you, do you focus on nose breathing or really slowly breathing when you sleep as well? Ironically, like I can't focus when I'm sleeping. <laughs> like my brain isn't functioning that way. I'm in yeah. subconscious mind and I don't have conscious control over it. But I can say that breathing with your mouth closed is very important, in fact. Generally speaking, especially in the formative years of one's first years in life, mm. zero, zero to seven or so is incredibly important, uh, incredibly important to breathe with your mouth shut. Women in tribes would literally like pinch their baby's lips shut if their baby was sleeping with their mouth agape. And the reasoning is because it helps develop all of this jaw structure and the nasal passageways. Super critical. If you've got a deviated septum or anything like doing breath practices during the day with your mouth closed to help bring balance to that deviated septum, whether it's alternate nostril breath, that's usually actually the best one or something else that can help to ingrain in your system to breathe through your nose so that at night, obviously we're not able to think about it. That way you can breathe through your nose. There's not really any way to make your breath longer at night. The funny thing is, is it's just shallow breath. As much as I talk about how great it is to be conscious breathing during the day, we don't really have control over that at night. But I think that if we get a better baseline throughout the day, it does shift how we breathe in the night because it'll revert to whatever our ingrained pattern is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have dabbled with, like, I'll admit I was kind of fishing a little bit with this question, but I have dabbled with mouth tape, which is one of the ways to focus more on breathing through your nose when you're sleeping. And it, for me, it's been a little bit uncomfortable and I haven't been consistent with it, but it does seem like that's something that's been popping more on my radar again recently is just how important it is to breathe through your nose and to breathe really slowly as ways that there are markers for longevity. There are. And it's a lot to do with the nitric oxide too. Like you don't get that if you just breathe through your mouth. Breathing through your nose is a filter naturally. Filters mm -hmm. the air, gets you the things you need and gets rid of the things you don't. Mm -hmm. So many reasons. There's so many other things that you do to... 
I, I have a, a kind of allergic reaction to the word optimize these days, but there, there seem to be so many things that you do to monitor your energy and the way that you're showing up. And we could talk nutrition, we could talk other ways that you have become more embodied, uh, different somatic practices, maybe even inner work. Mm -hmm. in, in any of the things I've just named, what do you feel most called to to talk about with relation it doesn't have to be with relation to your work but what are what are some ways that you look at managing your energy that we haven't already addressed mm. yeah I've, I've paused to to collect my thoughts there that managing one's energy through the day really is a whole stack of books worth it's mm -hmm. it's a it's not just one activity. It's the collection of all of the good activities. So the number of one things coming to mind are in relation to sleeping as close to alignment with natural sunlight patterns as I can, along with getting exercise in the day. As a woman, for me, it depends the kind of exercise to where I am in my hormone cycle, as well as what I'm eating, whether or not I've had caffeine and additionally it's the degree of sunlight that i can get in a day can i catch the sun rays as it comes over the mountain right here as the sun has risen and can i catch it as it's setting those are incredibly important to monitor the functions of our hormone system the melatonin that gets produced and the cortisol that gets produced are all impacted by when our sleep is how our sleep is and when we see light so most people aren't thinking about that for their energy in the day. If they're looking at the TV screen at 10 o'clock at night and going right to bed, well, it's no wonder you feel agitated right before you fall asleep. You need to be in darkness. You need to let the melatonin be produced. <sighs> I just <laughs> like pausing at the grandioseness of the question, like, oh man, how can we get more specific here? Because th there are a lot of practices that help me maintain my energy in the day. I sleep a lot. I sleep well. I'm more of a person that sleeps between eight and nine hours or more every day. Getting movement helps my body feel good throughout the day too. And I don't think I've ever experienced, well, let me say in the, in the post domino effect, the first Costa Rica trip era, the last six years, I can't think of a time when in this duration, I've felt an afternoon lull. I don't experience needing something like a nap ever. It's all day long. <laughs> That's how it ought to be. <laughs> mm -hmm. mm. What types of things are, like I know you do holistic health and wellness coaching now, and what types of challenges or what type of person is showing up in, in, in your world these days? And, and I know I'm asking lots of big questions and they, they're kind of open-ended on purpose, but what are, what are some ways that you're providing support for, for these folks? Because health and wellness is such a big topic. It's, it's kind of all encompassing in a lot of ways. And that's why there were so many deep breaths as you were responding to that, because it is a whole stack of books worth. And you know, I, I do come back to a lot of tried and true principles around what it means to get good sleep, movement, sunlight in the morning and evening, all the things that you've beautifully and eloquently named. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I'm just wondering how uh, 
when people show up to work with you, how are you supporting folks around that? Mm. Yeah. Again, the whole like book stack of books sort of thing. There's many, many layers to helping someone with this. And I find when people reach out to me at first for coaching, um, health coaching specifically, it's, it's typically around finally doing the things that they say they want to do and getting away from falling off the bandwagon every now and then, and just sticking with the things that they know that they should do. And so we work with what are they eating and how are they eating it and when are they eating it? (laughs) And I admit too, in our Americanized world, the convenience-based foods and how much we just want it quickly. And then we eat things that just aren't great (laughs) and we snack. It's getting rid of some of those habits and helping them with meal prep or creation of, of foods that they can eat that are quick on the go. Those are things that I always end up working with someone on in the, in the startup, as well as following through with the exercise habits or the going for walk habits. I admit for most people, when they finally put together their why for doing it, it's easy. Some people just haven't had a person like a coach to reflect to them and ask them the questions of, well, why is this important to you? Why do you wish to have this habit? Where are you trying to go in your life? What do you want to feel like in a few years or in a few months? And when that's held up like a mirror, then it's actually super easy to finally do the thing you say you want to do. So within a couple months, most people are doing the things that they say they want to do. And our coaching suddenly becomes far more about all the internal blockages that keep them from following through. The health coaching might seem like the tangibles of getting the exercise routine and getting your diet down pat and getting your sleep down pat. But actually it's your own self-limiting beliefs and your own self-deprecative thoughts and your own feeling lack of worth or lack of being enough or relationship issues or self-relationship issues. And the list goes on. We end up getting into those things. And that is what people find almost more valuable because that's the self-development work that everybody seeks. I think naturally humans seek that optimization, optimization, like the, the, the word that you feel a little repulsed by. We want to be healthy. I think at a fundamental level, we want things to be in flow. We don't want the hardship and to get it. It's often us in the way of having it and us prioritizing other shit outside of us rather than just prioritizing ourselves. So I help people prioritize themselves. Mm-hmm. I help people make choices that make them the best version of them so that they can show up at their job or show up for their spouse or show up for their kids. So that's a start. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, if you are comfortable going there, I would love to just talk about the inner work because I think that is, that's what underlies all of this. There's the know-how, right? Like just knowing on a very practical level, when to get sunlight, what to be eating, what exercise movements are are helpful. And none of that is really that helpful on a shaky foundation, which to me is where the inner work comes in. And I'll say for, for you, it sounds like the hyper achiever and perfectionist maybe were two, two parts of yourself that you needed to look at. And I imagine I'll make this about me for now. My perfectionist around self-development and eating healthier, going to the gym would have a, had a very all or nothing approach that would lead to me 
doing something well for two weeks or a month or even two months and beyond to then if I just had a few days of not following through, it felt like it was all for nothing, which doesn't really seem like a, there's a deep excavation of inner work to do. But uh, but I what I could see after doing lots of inner work now is that that is just one manifestation of what it means to be a perfectionist and having an all or nothing approach. So I guess what, what I'm getting at is what are some ways that you help people get more in touch with the parts of themselves or ways that they are self-sabotaging? What is, what does that inner work look like? Ooh, how do I help people get in touch with their own self-sabotage? Oh man. <laughs> so it's tricky. It takes a certain kind of person to be willing to go there. Mm -hmm. I don't force that matter early on. What's coming to mind first is actually a, a client that after our reasonable duration of coaching decided she was finished with coaching and wanted to discontinue. And I was looking over our notes and just seeing how much she consistently was, was self-sabotaging, but she wasn't ready to hear it from me. So I didn't ever name it that way. In contrast, the people who are ready for it I, I'm an incredibly authentic practitioner, I would say. Like it's it's really priority for me to be real. And so when I hear, I'm trying to think of an example. It's actually quite difficult to be broad speaking. The point is, is I, I give a very true reflection whether or not it's kind not that I'm the one being unkind, but to reflect to them, like, this is what I just heard you say, or here's the contrast between what you say you want to do and what you're doing. And to highlight that sort of thing, I think I'm sussing out whether a person is is open to hearing it. And, and there are clients who weren't like the one that I started to allude to. And, and then most of them are. I don't know what the, the thing is that tells me they're ready. <laughs> I can't, I can't quite pin that right now, but it's in reflections to them. I think to, to purely simply answer your question of how do I help people get in touch with their own self-sabotage? It's the way that I myself and other coaches have done for me. I reflect to them. Here's the discrepancy between what's going on. What do you really want here? Here's what you're doing. And that can usually be a situation that's like pulling the bottom wood piece out of the Jenga set that can topple the rest over. Mm -hmm. And it then becomes just alarmingly clear for them that they can't keep doing things the way they were doing it before, whether that was something particularly internal or some kind of external behavior. When that kind of a flashlight is sh shown on them and they're that on the spot about it and they see themselves, when I see them and they see themselves, that's when things can start to change. Mm -hmm. One of my teachers, whom I actually forgot to mention, was also another really important one in the in the process that I've had. She's a teacher at a consciousness school who's using breath as a vehicle for consciousness. Had said, once you wake up, you can't go back to sleep. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I attempt to do, is help people become awake to what they do or what they say or what they're thinking and see it 
And then it sparks all kinds of insights and reflections. And maybe they need to go journal after our coaching call. Maybe they need to go for a walk. And that's just the beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Taking the red pill as it were. Yeah. It, it reminds me of, uh, actually, before I started this podcast, I was in a, a coaching session one time where I was the client and I was speaking to my desire to start a podcast. And the, the question of what's at risk if you were to start a podcast or what's getting in the way of you starting a podcast, I remember saying there's nothing that's getting in the way. Like I was, I was very proud of myself. Like I, I know that I need, I just need to do it. There's, there's absolutely nothing that's in my way. And one of the gifts that a coach that my coach brought in that moment and that any coach can bring is to reflect back, but it's not here right now. So are, are you sure there's nothing in the way? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds really simple and, and it is really simple, but I, I don't think I was willing to look at that point at the different fears and different, there was lots of unresolved and unlooked at past pains in my life that I continue now to explore as I make myself more and more visible as I make more podcasts and, and in more ways I'm showing up as a, a public facing kind of sharing my process in real time person is that well, inevitably the, the layers of all the different times where I didn't feel safe being seen and all the all the moments that I just I felt like I needed to pretend to be someone else because it was too vulnerable to actually share who I was. It's it's quite a liberating feeling to actually look at those things and and to acknowledge that yeah, those things are in the way right now. It's it's not it's not I just need to go do the things. There's there's lots of good reasons why I am self not maybe not self-sabotaging, but there's there are lots of adaptive reasons that I'm showing up the way that I am right now and they're not quite serving me in the way that, cause I was connected to why I wanted to start a podcast. I really want to, in conversations like this, I get to selfishly, I get to be who I really am in any given moment. And I also feel like I'm learning and downloading more tools that as we share to an audience are really helpful for them too. And so many different ways that we can heal and feel more like who we are in, as we've alluded to pretty clearly in a culture that doesn't really promote that. So yeah, it's, it's really important to acknowledge the ways that we are feeling stuck because it, only in actually making direct eye contact with them are we free to make a new choice about how we see it. And that it took me a long time to learn that, but it is one of the gifts of a coach is to just shine that light. And if the client is ready, hopefully they are, then they, there's a, there's new options that might become available. And if they're not, then right. hopefully another time they will be. It's illuminating to them that they have choice. Yeah. Yeah. And they could choose to keep doing the adaptive thing. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because those sorts of patterns that we have got ingrained in us throughout childhood and they're rather stuck there. So very frequently they're unconsciously running our show they're keeping us from doing the things we say we want to do, or they're making us feel fear. And therefore we do something that isn't really in line with what we desire. So having a coach reflect back is one of those ways that helps to illuminate that, ah, this is, this is me acting from fear rather than me acting from my real truth. And 
what do I want to choose now? Do I want to keep choosing to be afraid? It doesn't always just instantaneously go away with the snap of a finger, but a lot of the time, actually, it can just by bringing it to light and not keeping it stuck away and covered in shame. Mm. And that that seems to be very true of emotions on a on a more regular basis too. There's there's lots of research that say that says that emotions, if we are present to them and are able to be with them, they move through us in ninety seconds or less. Yep, exactly. So there's, again, there's a million and one different directions that we can go. But I think one of the reasons that I was really excited to hop on a podcast with you is your perspective around what it means to be coming into terms with what it means to be alive as a woman and what it means to be embodied as a woman. And in our culture, that really has lots of shoulds and shouldn'ts in general, but especially it seems for women. I guess let's just start with what does it mean to, like how do you look at culturally what it means to be a, a woman in in American culture? Oh my gosh. Yeah, what a deep subject. Uh, I mean, where my mind goes first is the, it, it's a very politicized topic. It's It's feminism. And, and what what happened with that throughout the 1900s and where it's led us now. And I'm no expert on this per se, but I do believe that the female pursuit to have equal pay and, and all of that era has also put us into a position where we need to be more masculine more of the time. And that's counter to our real nature. Mm. And we want men to be masculine, but we emasculate them by doing all like so many behaviors that women do today in our culture and just taking away a man's power and our power is much more so in our creation capacity our womb oh my gosh like <laughs> the the amount of intuitive guidance that we have in our beingness is our power more so than the doingness all the time this this is a, a nice segue to a point that I made note of wanting to bring up when it came to the question of general embodiment for me, that is super important here. And that's that women in our culture today are also told by the medical system that hormonal birth control is the right way to go for managing, not getting pregnant, managing excess acne, managing menstrual discomfort, many things, but it's also the bad Worst, awful, most awful thing about it is it's desensitizing women to what their hormone cycle really feels like. So they're not in touch with it anymore. Some part of me thinks that there's a ploy by Western medicine or something and 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 productivity and capitalism that makes it such that the doctors are telling the women to take hormonal birth control because it desensitizes them and therefore they can work like a man can work. I was able to work in the school system and put on masks and go, 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 go week after week, regardless of whether it was my period time or not, I think because of being on that and getting off of it helped me see, oh, wow, I have this whole arc of a month. I have amazing highs and I have also deep, dark, murky mm -hmm. swamp water and both are really beautiful. The rain clouds and the rainbows are beautiful aspects of life. We need the whole spectrum. It can't all be go, go, go and high productivity and 
constantly putting out as much product or making as many sales as our male counterparts can. We're not meant to do that. We're meant to be so much more cyclical, like the moon, the phases. <laughs> and, and I think a lot of women have gotten away from that embodiedness. But I mean more so, of course, the age bracket of women who could be pregnant and who are trying to prevent it. Yeah. Not as much the older generation, not as much school age kids. <sighs> yeah, big subject. Many shoulds and shouldn'ts you'd said about being a woman in our culture. <laughs> like the, the other things that come to mind that affected my growing up were the shoulds of being beautiful. Mm -hmm. The shoulds of being put together, having a pretty outfit, being attractive. Acne was bad. Oh, shouldn't have acne. It shows that I'm unhealthy or something. I don't know. And my mom's shame was humongous for her own body. And how heartbreaking it is that I ended up taking on so much of that shame of like, my body's not good. I'm only worthy if I'm fit and beautiful. I'm only worthy if I've got makeup on that day. Like there's a lot of creation around that, especially for us women that grew up in like 80s, 90s, so on. I don't really know what it's like to grow up as a kid right now. There's a lot more media than there was when I grew up. I can only imagine it's worse, truly. But at the same time, not because there's a whole like be whoever you want to be sort of yeah, yeah. And, uh, going on right now. But there, I think that that being ingrained in us as women when we were younger makes the women that are around my age now as like the millennials, Gen X sort of era, like late twenties to late forties. We, we have a lot of that ingrained in us. Mm -hmm. It makes us operate differently in the world. It makes us cover up who we really are. And it's only in like really discreetly private moments or something that it's okay to show all of who we are. Mm -hmm. I think that sucks. So I've been working on undoing that for myself. For instance, like go to a social event, even though I'm late luteal phase, which is just before the bleed, when all I want to do is be a cozy cat in sweatpants at home and I'll still go to the gathering and I'll just own it. I'll be like, I'm low and slow today. I'm not vivacious and wearing my feather earrings and my winged eyeliner. I'm just a mush ball. Who wants to be a mush ball with me? And like that sort of owning it is liberating. Yeah. But I wouldn't have gotten to that had I not had these last six years of this journey I've been on. I'd still be stuck in the shoulds. The, I should go to work. I should make good money. I should have a good face on no matter what, in the sense of like, regardless of what I'm feeling, I'm able to deliver the deliverables. Mm -hmm. And women who force themselves into that, force is the word there. There's force to it. That's not the natural way. Doing the hormonal birth control that makes you not even aware that you're doing it the unnatural way adds to just how detrimental it is to our body systems. Yeah. The beauty standard that women in our culture face, it, it breaks my fucking heart. It's, there's just, there's, there's so many, again, there's just so many shoulds and so many expectations around what it means to be desirable and attractive 
And we didn't even get into the, the personality traits about being pleasant and being polite and being gentle. And there, there's just so many expectations that are built in to what it means to be a woman. And it, it really breaks my heart to, uh, to see that. And one thing that I want to circle back to, because I, I think it's, it's amazing that you're in tune enough with yourself to, to have this awareness that you've, you've alluded to maybe in different parts of your cycle where you're in touch with this is, I'm in a maybe mushy kind of mushier mood. And my workouts also vary based on the, where I am in my cycle. I, I'm wondering if you could bring more color to what that, I know it probably changes and you're in touch with it moment by moment, but could you speak a little bit to what, uh, you know, how, how you're able to tune into that over the course of a month or over the, co over the course of your cycle? Mm. It's truly beautiful to be able to be in tune with it. And I'm only further tweaking my awareness of being in tune with it <clears throat> as, as the months go by. For me, it's been about just shy, I want to say, of three years since I stopped being on hormonal birth control. No, that's not true. It's been four. It's been since 2019. Okay. Yeah. I was closing my eyes to try to get back to it, but this whole duration has been a journey of, of exploring what works. And as far as something like workouts go, there's a fun phrase that women are not small men by a doc, uh, like a doctor, PhD woman who's wrote a cool female fitness book, Stacy Sims. And she, it's, it was one of those first things that opened my eyes to that. I can't work out like a man again, to the same point of, I can't do and produce all the time. A man has a 24 hour testosterone and whole hormone cycle reset. And the female's cycle can be between 26 to 29 days when it's at its healthy length. And over those days, like the start of the bleed is actually the time that a woman starts becoming more like her male counterparts because her progesterone goes down and the balance is better in estrogen and progesterone. So I can work out harder once my bleed has like started its drop. <laughs> like usually I'll wait till day two or three, but I can do heavier lifts or more reps. And that can last for about two weeks from maybe like day three of my cycle to day 17 or so. But then once I start ending up in the luteal phase after I've ovulated, that's when my whole system gets a little slower. That's when nutrient-wise, I need to be focusing on a different balance in macronutrients, as in more protein and fat. I mean, you need all three, but more protein and fat when I'm able to lift heavier and have more reps, but more carbs when I'm late luteal, because it truly is required to help reset the hormonal cycle. I lift a little lighter. I go instead for more endurance in the luteal phase. And I allow myself slowness. I allow myself rest days. Mm. I don't work out every day, even in the time of my cycle that I am, like biologically speaking, more like a male in what I can put out. I still don't work out every day. It's not good for me. <laughs> Maybe not good for most women. But to be able to attune to my my cycle that way, like I can just tell. Obviously, I've been tracking my cycle now for years. I know where I'm at. I know that today I'm ovulating. I know that today I'm like a butterfly. I know that I want to go be social and I want to go be flirtatious and I want to go lift a lot and show off in the gym, <laughs> which I'll go do after this call. <laughs> <laughs> but like a week and a half from now, 
I don't want any social engagements. I'm going to direct purposefully clear my calendar more so and have less to do on those days. I've gotten into the swing of things in, in being a coach these days in the last couple of years where the time where I'm like day 27, 28, and then day one, two, those three or four days I'll have maybe only virtual calls and no in-person body work, which, which is another aspect of my work is the Thai body work. And I'll have less social engagements. And if they do happen, they come to me at my house and I'll make a big pot of some like massive chuck roast, slow cooked with vinegars and broths and something healing from my womb. And I'll drink the right teas and I'll not drink any coffee. And I make a lot of adjustments to where I'm at in my cycle. And the beauty of it is, is I feel good. I feel refreshed and restored even when I've taken time off. I'm more effective as a coach when I make myself take those days off and not do anything. I'm able to like cocoon in my little swamp womb and let things integrate and fester and ideas get created and I write more and I journal more. And then when I do put stuff out in the days to follow, it's packed. Mm -hmm. And this has been my flow. This has been the beauty of getting to actually back to embodiment listen in what's true to my system today what is it that i need <sighs> it's beautiful it really is and i i don't think i've spoken to anyone on this podcast or maybe even in general who was able to speak with that much detail and color around ways that you organize your month so that you're really honoring when it's time to rest and kind of go into inward mode and be gentle with yourself and maybe journal and, and creativity. And then when it's time for output to really just own that and crush, like I'm going to, as soon as we get off this call, I'm going to crush a lift and I'm getting lots of output. But next week I know that I'm probably going to need some rest and restoration time. And it's a beautiful gift to be able to share that with my audience because I just don't think there are that many people who are in tune with the way they operate. And it's usually an outside in orientation of, oh, this is the way that other successful people are operating and I should follow them. And it's another, it seems like a byproduct of our education system and, and the ways that we, we, we look at, it seems like another pitfall of kind of, we look at there's a right way and a wrong way. And we can get into a whole separate discussion about that, but one thing I absolutely wanted to bring in here as we get to the back end is that you've already in a lot of ways addressed this. And the, the question of what does it mean to be fully alive? You've really spoken a lot to that. But this was the question that I was most drawn to in the screening and questions that you definitely wanted to talk about. One of them was, what does it mean to you to be fully alive? And yeah. If there's anything that we haven't spoken about or anything that you want to hone in on that we have spoken about, what, how would you answer that question? So cool. I forgot I wanted to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> there's one little tendril still in my mind from tying in the, the previous topic. And that's that. And this is actually part of being fully alive too, is recognizing that you're going to make mistakes mm. and even with what I've just said about how I like to attune my cycle with what activities I'm doing and whatnot, there are still times I fuck it up. Mm -hmm. And 
I think to be fully alive is to feel what it feels like to have not done it the way that feels good for me. For instance, I'm traveling in a week and a half or two weeks from now when my bleed is going to be happening. And I'm really mad about it. Like ahead of time, I know it's going to be awful. I'm going to be in a different place. I'm not going to be in my home cocoon. I'm going to have to be working every day. I was going to suck. But like <laughs> to get to attune to it, even though I still made that choice, despite my cycle, is part of, I think, really being alive is addressing each moment as it's alive. And if, for instance, I did feel bad about it, I learn and I, and I'll be much more deliberate and have far more judicious boundaries about not scheduling that sort of an activity at that time next time, but not give myself a hard time in the moment. Mm. That's really key is having grace and gentleness with oneself. The perfectionist mind years ago would not have done well with that. (laughs) Let's see, but to hone in on what it means to be fully alive for me. Gosh, I guess like my eyes widen because there's such a vast array of life. Like what is life? What is living? The full emotional spectrum is life. Not boxing oneself into just being pleasant and just putting out good product, but the rest, the unrest, the chaos, the balance, <laughs> the routines, the, the dropping off of routines, like all of that is is living. Mm. Spending time in nature is so crucial to me feeling fully alive. Getting off of technology is so crucial for me to feel fully alive. <laughs> Ironically, as I stare at this computer screen, <laughs> it's daylight. It's, it's better. It's okay. <laughs> you know, wearing... wearing blue light blocking glasses when it's dark, right? Like there's so many little tips, raw optics, by the way, that's the way to go. I'll link to that in the show notes too. Raw optics, blue light blockers. Totally. Yeah. um, Being fully alive. Like, so maybe one of the things I'm most passionate about that on the notes of my exercise for myself, I love telling people why I work out. For me, being human is innately, I am capable. Human bodies are capable of insane feats. Before our sedentary modern times, we traveled by foot everywhere. We walked so much. We squatted so much. We got our food. We gathered the whatever. We killed the hunt. (laughs) Like We moved all the time, and we were really capable. Our bodies at that era in life, there's there's a lot of research about this. They were a little bigger. We were a little more like Viking stature. We had more meat to us. We were girthy in the right kind of way, like strength-wise. And I'm motivated to lift. And I do squat rack stuff and other ancillary exercises. I'm motivated because I want to be capable. I want to be able to go on the epic mountain adventures I love doing here in Colorado, where I'm without service for days and backpacking and have all the stuff with me. And if somebody were injured on that hike, I want to be able to get us back down the mountain into safety. I would carry that person or I would carry that person's stuff or whatever. I just want to, I want to be capable. So being fully alive, it's this, this whole spectrum of resting when we need to rest and working hard when it's time to work hard and and having a strong body to be able to do the hard, cool things. I'm flexible as I'll get out from my years of yoga. 
But if I had only focused on that, that would lead me to hip surgeries by the time I'm 70. Mm -hmm. Instead, I'm focusing on training those muscles and, and bringing strength to the, to the tiny ones that I never pay attention to when I'm doing yoga. Oh, I could just go on and on. I'm like trying to keep it gathered to the, to the question, but the pursuit free to go on and on. Yeah. 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 I'm just like finding the next pieces. So, you know, the, the being able to move one's body, to be flexible and agile, to be spending time in nature, to be in alignment with one's own cycle, whether you're male or female, Mm. the pursuit of learning is innately part of being alive. We're not stagnant beings. We're not meant to be. We're meant to be continually evolving and growing and I think we all are here for some sort of great, grandiose soul purpose. And it's important to me, it's fully alive to me to be living in alignment with what my awareness is for my own dharma and purpose, chasing after it and delivering what it is that in this lifetime, I think I meant to deliver, to impact the people around me, to inspire others to grow. But even outside of me, I think as a generalization, humans are meant to learn and to grow. There's variety. We're not meant to just be nine to five at a desk job. I think that that helps make our world go round right now. But sadly, I don't think that it serves humankind to do it. What am I missing here? Another little aspect that I think is really important that doesn't get talked about very often is our attachment being securely attached, I think is incredibly important in how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to other people. And we just create so much chaos in our worlds if we're stuck in anxious attachment or avoidant or any other disorganized attachment style. And they all happen from childhood stuff, of course, but they're not fixed. <laughs> they change. They change simply by having somebody else outside of you that's like an anchor and is secure in themselves. And then you can grow to be secure in yourself. There are all kinds of books and resources for this, but I've found that it's really been important in me as an adult, because if I was operating in my go-to as a kid was anxious attachment, if I was operating in all of that all the time, I'd be stuck in my own fears and not actualize anything. I wouldn't have anything to put out. I'd be crippled in some way, or I'd be stuck in my own messes in my day-to-day life that keep me distracted from being able to put out whatever good creative thing I can put out. So fully alive is also securely attached. Mm. And interestingly, I think securely attached goes hand in hand with being embodied because it's being able to be with oneself. It's experiencing yourself. It's attuning to yourself. It's having rituals and routines for yourself. It's recognizing your own internal conflict and turning towards it. When you experience a trigger, it's it's turning towards yourself. It's listening. Fully alive is not dissociated from one's emotions. Fully alive is not, I regret to say, not actually regret, but just admit that it's perhaps mean to some. It's not in the McDonald's food line at 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> I came back from a dance event late at night the other day because Brazilian Zoop dance events go pretty late. But the... The McDonald's line had 15 cars in it. I was at a stoplight and I turned my head and I counted them in total awe. 
you're not fully alive if you're eating McDonald's at 3 a.m., I would say. <laughs> and one last piece I'll say, at least for now on this, and, and you can, of course, ask questions and maybe I'll expand, but is that really being fully alive is like a vivacity. It's a vitality to oneself. It's that you're awake to what you're doing and how you're living. Your body is in pre-optimal condition. And simply being that is inspiring. So part of being fully alive to me is to deliberately inspire people around you to do the cool things, to expand in abundance, to expand in love, to expand in success is inspiring others. Mm. And I write that in my journal almost every day. And I, and I do my best. Part of being alive is forgiving myself and giving myself the grace on the days that I don't, right? But I write, I expand in abundance, love, and success every day as I inspire others to do the same. And I, I write that. I've probably written that 200 times in the past year. So um, What I love is I knew you would know the reference. I got it from originally my Kundalini teacher. She would say at the end of a class, she'd have us echo back and forth. If you would, would, would you do this with me? I'll say, and then you'll say, I expand. I expand. In success. In success. Abundance. Abundance. And love. And love. Every day. Every day. As I inspire. As I inspire. Those around me. Those around me. To do the same. To do the same. And lately, I've been reading a book called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. And it's that book that brought it back around to me. I learned it years ago from this teacher. Exactly. I could pull mine up too. It's great. <laughs> Listeners, um, we've got them both pulled up. We both got our copy of The Big Leap right, right on camera here. And, and he, he hashtags the ultimate success mantra. I speak it out loud at the end of every morning practice that I do. Every morning's practice is not identical, but it always ends with speaking aloud the mantra. And I have a reminder on my phone that goes off at about three in the afternoon to remind me to say it aloud again. Mm -hmm. So I too have a habit of that. And I don't think everybody would resonate with that. It's important to inspire others to be fully alive. But I think for me, I'm incredibly passionate about inspiring others. And it's it's always been the theme, even when I wasn't really awake yeah. to what my body felt. I was passionate about teaching kids. I wanted to inspire them and have an impact. And now I recognize, like, I'm only going to keep expanding if I share this out. So here we are. <laughs> mm -hmm. Here we are on this podcast, sharing it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, as we're towards the back end here, is there anything that we haven't already addressed or spoken about in this conversation that you would like to bring in here? I'm looking at some notes to see if I had anything I wanted to say. I did write a couple things about what I learned from my family mm -hmm. that I suppose now that I've said it out loud, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to. It might be some common themes of what some people growing up get from their parents and their family as a whole that I experienced and maybe you as listeners can relate to is that my family kind of taught me that the world is to be viewed about with fear, that there are so many things out there that can hurt you. They'd say things like, be careful. If I'm driving, they'd say, watch out for the deer. They'd fret about the weather. They freaked out when I said I was going to move to Baltimore because of the high murder rate. They said, oh, no, don't ever live in Australia. The spiders will kill you. 
And they kind of ingrain this idea that the only way to have control over the things in your life that might hurt you is to worry about them by talking about them. And instead, I'd like to think that I've gotten myself out of that kind of a mental prison. I've chosen to not focus on what could go wrong, but instead live in a world of possibility. Yes, there's bad out there. Yes, there's good out there. In Buddhism, they'd say, take the middle path of the two poles. It's unity. It's both. It's the masculine and the feminine. It's the chaos and the order. And we need both. Don't be afraid. <laughs> so much is possible. And I'd love for people to take that in too, if they haven't ever considered it before. Well, it's been an absolute blast to have you on so far, Jess. And I just have a couple more questions for you before I let you go to crush that workout that you've got lots of energy for that you're definitely not experiencing an afternoon lull for. Yes. What's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Ordinary moment that brings me great joy. Wow. <laughs> I do experience a lot of joy in the day to day. I mean, if, if you're watching this video, you'd see that I'm looking at the plants in my bedroom. <laughs> ordinary things that bring me joy are my house plants. I have a roommate that joked with me the other day, why would you need kids when you have houseplants? <laughs> because I, I delight over the fact that the wandering dude plant sprouted a little pink flower. And I delight over that my cuttings have sprouted roots. And I delight over that, oh, moving this violet out of the direct sunlight is going to help its leaves not be crispy anymore. And it's just delighting and caring for something that brings my home so much color and variety and texture and groundedness and aeration, you know, but I delight in my plants. And I happen to live in a mountain house. <laughs> so I delight in that when I look outside, I see trees, shit tons of them, evergreens on the mountainside across from me. I don't have very many neighbors. There's no service here if I didn't have any Wi-Fi. So when the Wi-Fi box is scheduled to be off during the day, and if the power goes out, I live like there's no internet. And the simplicity of being someplace that feels less intruded by sound waves and by electrical magnetic frequencies feels good. So I delight in just laying in my room, looking at my plants and feeling good. Mm -hmm. I love that. I'm going to ask two different questions, but answer that they're very similar. So just answer whichever one feels more alive for you. Where do you feel most unfinished or what edge are you currently most exploring in your life? Hmm. The edges I'm exploring the most of my life currently have to do with authenticity. In fact, it's still the current exploration. I have been going to authentic relating meetups and it's really big here in Boulder, Colorado. I think that they're in some other towns, but authentic relating is its whole own legitimate thing, even though it sounds really obvious, like normal words, but it's, it's a practice and going to those meetups and being radically myself and not being swayed by someone else's experience and instead being fully in mine, those are the edges. Yeah. It's led into me wanting to bring more synergy to all the work that I do. 
so that I'm not only putting out the good stuff, but putting out all the layers of the stuff, being super real with my clients. And eventually I think it's leading toward me drawing in all the ties of my music education background, my yoga background, my Thai body work background, my now health coaching career. And it's moving towards the direction of really relational topics, like how to help people be better in relationships simply by owning their experience and not taking something personally and not making assumptions. The whole idea of four agreements, the Miguel Ruiz book, all of this has been my work lately. And it's a perfect, it's a perfect question to end this whole podcast with because my embodiment work has been compounded and is exponentially growing because now I'm doing authentic relating work. So it's changing how I show up in my career. It's changing how I show up in my relationships. It's changing how I show up for myself. And it's also changing how I show up with my family. And that one is the hard one. Uh (laughs) So this is the work for me. Mm. Yeah. Where would you invite folks to connect with you online? I'd say easiest of all is my website. It's Mm jesscrutchfield.com. Easy enough. Sure, you can link to it too. I've got an Instagram that is still by my old kind of identity in and how much I identified as the Thai body worker. I still do. Uh, my Instagram is just Thai yoga. Also simple enough. So you can connect with me on either of those platforms. I, I do put lots of writings out on my website. You can connect with me to do virtual coaching sessions. If you feel really inspired by any of what we've talked about here. I adore working with so many different people. I admit it's been hard to niche down, but if I had to really choose, it's helping women get off hormonal birth control and get more in touch with their body and their hormone cycle. I really have a love for for helping women with those things. And otherwise, uh, I share my life on Instagram sometimes. So you'll see really authentic versions of me there too. Awesome, Jess. Well, I will link to your website. I will link to your Instagram. I'll link to Coherent Breathing, The Four Agreements, Authentic Relating, The Big Leap, all the beautiful resources that we've brought into the conversation today. And the last question that I ask is, which you've already answered in a lot of ways, but I would love to ask you. The podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I would love to know in the words of Jess, what does it mean to live a meaningful life? Well, Jess's search for meaning has been <laughs> this whole process of coming further in contact with the real me and not the me that felt like I had to do certain things or should do certain things growing up in school. Not the me that only showed the perfect sides, not the me that only had on a pretty face of makeup, but my way of finding meaning is embodying the real things I feel. And that has changed everything that has changed the relationships most of all. And that's been perhaps the most important part. Meaning to me comes from feeling connected. So do I feel connected to the work I deliver? Do I feel connected to myself? Do I feel connected with this person I'm with? It's those meaningful moments that I live for. Is the, is the moments of depthful connection, not the surface level stuff. <laughs> so questions you asked me here have helped me to deliver something I think that's really deep. And I want to go deep with people. Yeah. So 
that is my ever ongoing pursuit of meaning in my life. Thank you. Well, Jess, I, I, you're very welcome. And I share your desire for depth and, and really deep connection. And I appreciate the way that you are able to really drop in and go really deep with me today. And, and the ways that you are, you said your edge is to continue to show up with authenticity and really deepening what that means, especially in relationship. And I experience you to really be exploring that edge with just a wild vitality. And I mean that in a really positive way that you're, you're really showing up to your edges and, and meeting them with ferocity and love and, and owning the parts of you that are maybe you aren't as proud of, or, you, you know, like I, I messed up and that's okay. And that's, then that's also what, what it means to be alive and, and really owning that it's the way that you were able to model that for our audience today is an incredible gift. And there's so many different, if you only focus on different 10 minute bites of this interview that I think could really profoundly transform the way that we, that we're able to be in our life. So hopefully everyone is tuned into many of those 10, 10 minute bites, but it was an absolute pleasure to be able to jam with you for the past hour and a half or so. Amazing. I'm so delighted and I really appreciate this. It's been fun to jam and I look forward to our next passings. Me too. Me too. And to all the listeners, whenever you're listening, I hope that you have a wonderful, joyous rest of your day or evening. Get away from your screen and take good care. Lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.